Welcome to Imagining France, a series of podcasts bringing you into the world of the National Gallery's summer exhibition, Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns Between Paris and Pontevin. This is the first museum show in over 30 years to focus on the painted and graphic work of this Irish artist. The exhibition covers the years 1887 to 1895, a short but critical phase in O'Connor's career, spent between Paris, the capital of the art world at the time, and Pontevin, a picturesque village in Brittany. Examining O'Connor's expressive signature style alongside the portrait, landscape and still-life work of other well-known modern artists, the exhibition includes works by Vincent van Gogh, Paul Gauguin, Armand Sagan, Robert Beffan and Kuno Amiat. This series of podcasts combining speakers from diverse professions will feature stories, thoughts and individual responses taking you inside the exhibition and evoking O'Connor's world at the end of the 19th century, a time and place which inspired a revolution in European art. For this episode, we bring together Dr. Brendan Rooney, head curator of the National Gallery and co-curator of the exhibition, and artist Keen McLaughlin to consider the practice and techniques of the Pontevin artists and the environment out of which the works emerged. Because I was just trying to imagine what it's like to walk into a room with 340 Van Goghs in one space. Mm. Well, presumably just, cluttered as hell. Yeah, I think it was hung salon style, floor to ceiling, racked against the walls. Yeah, and all unframed, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the story in the catalogue about they were so cheap, people were thinking of buying them to use as blank canvases to paint over them. Mm. That's kind of heartbreaking. But even Van Gogh wouldn't have seen 340 of his own paintings. No. Hi, my name is Brendan Rooney. I'm head curator here at the National Gallery of Ireland and co-curator on the current exhibition, Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns Between Paris and Pontevin. And I'm talking to Keen McLaughlin, who is going to give us his particular take on the exhibition uh, from an artist's perspective. I wonder if you could just give us a, an intro about where, so we can place you mm-hmm. retrospectively, where, where, what your background is and what your particular interests in your practice are. I know a lot of artists are very reluctant to use the word practice, so this may be the last time I'll use it. Yeah, no, no. But your, yeah. pre- your preferred subjects and how yeah. you came to choose those or select those, was that an organic process or...? Yeah. Um, well, I, tra- I trained as an architect originally, then I went on to do a master's in film studies, and all through that, my mother, who's a portrait painter, would have um, put pens and pencils and paintbrushes in my hand since as early as I can remember. So then as soon as I graduated from architecture, I retired immediately and then went on to paint. So that's 17 years ago, 16 years ago now. And so in that time, I've mostly concentrated on figures, portraits and urban landscapes. So this show was very... Uh, appropriate for me to go and see because it seemed to intersect with all of my interests in terms of painting subjects and techniques even. And is um, O'Connor someone of whom, you, of whom you'd always have been aware? Yeah, I always knew about him. Um, and if I was to confess, I would have had him in it. I didn't know exactly his dates and how he related to the Impressionist, post-Impressionist. I always had him in my head as this Breton girl conventional portrait painter as some sort of pastiche guy who came along after them and did these kind of impersonations of the Impressionists. This kind of, uh, how would you describe him? 
like an after, uh, I didn't realize he was in the trenches experimenting and pushing and pulling and strapped to these guys in France. I thought he was some guy who might have seen them in a book or seen them somewhere else. Because the, the bread on girls ones, the bread on girl paintings are, are, they vary in how conventional they are in this show, but that's all I knew of his his work. But then I saw this show and it's... And it, was, it, was it this show particularly that this show. Really? Yeah, literally this show, because I had no idea of this period of his life, this kind of Pont Avant, French adventure that he went on. Although this seemed to be a thing that a lot of artists would have gone on, I didn't realize that he had gone on this adventure at the time with Gauguin and with these other guys just after Van Gogh, but the influence is clear that they were all pushing and pulling against each other and with each other and competitively uh, or collaboratively outdoing each other or borrowing from each other. And it seems that he should be more, maybe this, this show, one of the great things about this show is it repositions him on this kind of European scale artist, not some Irish guy who painted in the style of the French lads, that this guy was actually one of them. Yeah, I mean, because we find ourselves uh, um, bearing a, a responsibility as a national institution to sort of promote our own, which obviously, and it makes sense, and that maybe would have been the point of departure, but the further we got into the process of putting the exhibition together, the more he emerged as a, a French artist, you know, to all intents and purposes. Yeah. Uh, and, and then it became clear, although John, who I curated it with, was, had known this all along and been you know, very com comfortable with this, but um, we could fit him into a French story very easily. It's not, even he wasn't an outsider, he wasn't on the periphery. As you say, he was right there, and you could place him among some, some giants and some of the, the, you know, the kind of the, uh, the acolytes who surrounded those, those individuals. But you could put him there squarely and leave him there, and, and he, you know, his work performs incredibly well. Uh, generally speaking, and that's one of the, that, that was one of the great uh, luxuries, I suppose, of doing this particular show, focusing on that period, because you could do that. It all gets more complicated afterwards, but then I suppose the European art scene got more complicated in the 20th century anyway, but we are talking about the, that, you know, that transitional phase from you know, the 1880s and 90s to just uh, post-1900s. Mm. So it was interesting for us that he emerges as a, as a of a significant figure in the French, the story of French modernism. Uh, well, it's quite clear in the show that this is what happens. And some of my favorite kind of moments in the exhibition as you go through <clears throat> are where he's hung side by side with the big dogs and they go toe to toe with each other. And he certainly holds his own. I mean, I wouldn't have any hesitation. In fact, I challenge people to go in and not read the, the little notes beside each painting and just assess each work on its own merits, just stand back, appreciate the paintings, take, a, take their time, and then go up and see who's Gauguin, who's O'Connor, who's Amiette, who's yeah. all, uh, all these uh, I mean, major characters from Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the past, in, in, uh, I suppose I've never done a show quite like this, uh, but I've, I've, you know, even in writing, um, we would often find ourselves kind of searching for some kind of grounding in Ireland. And we didn't do that here. There was no relevance to it. There was no relevance to taking the story constantly back to Ireland to try to find points of reference. With, with artists who worked in a more academic tradition, because it was such a uh, uniform approach, and often very beautiful and very high quality, but it was quite uniform, 
a lot of those artists, you, you try to find how they appropriated that to Ireland or how their experience of the land or landscape may have informed what they did. And that none of that applies, or at least as far as I could tell, none of that applies to him. Which I thought was really interesting that, as I say, you, you could kind of put him in France and leave him there, which is essentially what happened as well. Yeah. Because he stayed there for the Almost vast an accident of, of birth is why he's in the National Gallery of Ireland now. Yeah. Rather than... Yeah. <clears throat> you know, this huge career he had with the RHA or yeah. on site here somewhere in Dublin. Um, one of the things we stressed throughout was how much he benefited from being part of this collective. And it's pretty, it was pretty loosely formed in, in Pontevin, this, this, this so-called Pontevin school of which he was a, you know, active and key member. But he appears from what you can tell from the work itself on, on the, the evidence of that, uh, that he benefited hugely from the collaboration and the interaction. And does that resonate for you at all? Not really, because there was a description in the catalogue for this show where Pontevant was described as this small, kind of sleepy French town with, at one stage, 100 artists working in it. So you can just imagine this place, and they were all working outdoors with live sitters with no studios, or certainly not studio-bound work. And it almost seemed like this kind of Monty Python sketch to me of just these guys hanging out of trees and everywhere you looked there's a guy with an easel poking <laughs> up or checking the light or you know, squeezing paint out on his palette. And you can imagine at night then that they'd all be retiring to the cafes and having fights with Gauguin about what colour the shadows are or something. Yeah, and drinking too much cider. Yeah, the cider sounded good all right in the tour. but that they would be locking horns every night and this would be a very fruitful thing. And it seemed that they were aware that they were moving painting away from uh, <clears throat> the kind of, the given traditions that they had been born into and they were trying to change its direction and there was philosophy behind it and there was just, um, so from the synthesis to the pointillist to the impressionist and all this was swimming around. So that seemed kind of a heady mix that I've never experienced personally, obviously, but I'd be quite a studio-bound, isolated type of artist, I guess, that, um, and having studied architecture as well, I wouldn't, most of my social circle would be architects rather than, I didn't go to art college, so that wouldn't really apply to me as much, but then again, cross-contamination or collaboration or influence can happen in a million different ways. It doesn't have to be the Pontevant model, it can be just going to exhibitions, going to the modern equivalent of seeing 340 Van Goghs in an apartment, going to see the work, and, um, and that work helps you then with your work when you go back to your studio. And what about the notion of inviting criticism of your work? Because there was a letter that Damiette wrote to his parents in which he said, uh, he described the essential shape of his and O'Connor's day where they'd drop around each other's working spaces and criticise each other's work. Now, he dresses it up or, uh, to sound as if it was this incredibly harmonious exchange. Uh, and I, I can't believe it was, you know, that benign uh, a kind of an interaction, but... Through gritted teeth, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he said, he, he, Ami had said that, that O'Connor was quite uh, open to criticism. Yeah, um, I, think, I think if you're, <clears throat> if you find people who are sympathetic to what you're trying to achieve, that kind of critting of each other's work can help, especially if you learn each other's kind of triggers and what to avoid and, and how to phrase things. It can be a really healthy environment. Um, I know for myself, I have four or five people who I, whose opinions I really value about the work 
and if something's not working for them in the work, I know it's not working. Um, that they know what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah, I was going to say, what do they need to know about you to be able to make that judgment in a way that you find uh, useful? I think it's a very slow process of kind of, I suppose, being around me a lot and hearing me um, have ideas that are go nowhere and ideas that go somewhere and then they see how these things are being distilled over time through the work and they can then project where I'm trying to go on the work and help me remember what my initial concept was if I get lost. That, that can be really useful that way. They, can, they, they have the kind of intermittent view where I'm in the studio every day and things can incrementally go wrong. Slowly, slowly, slowly. You, you just don't notice every day that you're losing track of what you were trying to achieve in the first place. Whereas they come in once a week or once a month or even once a year or even longer for some of them. And they go, what the hell? What are you doing? You, I thought your idea was this. And it may be that you did want to change direction or it may be that you've lost your course. So that can be good. But it's always a row. I mean, it's never pleasant to hear a truth like that. Like you've wasted a year of your working life here. That's not a pleasant thing to hear. Or, you know, I've heard about the rows between Van Gogh and Gauguin where they would both be stuck in in their own respective positions. And I just don't know how that can be a function. I, well, obviously their friendship didn't flourish <laughs> to the end. Um, but I can understand why someone would cut their ear off and shoot themselves in the chest and one guy would storm off on a train if they're continuously at each other's throats yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, it's difficult, it's difficult. Um, and criticism's always hard if the work is very personal. Um, one of my favorite stories from this show actually is when Amiette showed what I would think is the most radical work in the show, which is that reclining woman, which is just, even now looks like a radical piece of painting with the temper on cardboard, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. And it got panned and he never showed it again. So you can see that these guys aren't just these kind of bulletproof characters, you know, with a torch in the darkness showing us the new way of painting. There were sensitive people who had attachment to their own work and would feel personally slighted if they were attacked. And as someone who works in, uh, in similar media, in oil on canvas, do you feel an affinity generally with painters of any generation who work in those media, or with these artists particularly? Oh, God. Um, there's, there's, there's a, there's a, I, I mean, think about that one. Well, no, there's, there's a kind of a, 
you mean like there's from a, there's a, there's a sensory the, right up to... Well, yeah, well, it's just there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sensory quality to working in oil paint. Yeah. That you, that you, you don't understand unless you've done it. So about selecting brushes or, you know, palette knife, whatever it happens to be, and how it behaves and all those things. True, with exceptions before, say, this is a gross generalization, but to give the idea that from Impressionism on, or say, slightly pre-Impressionism, suddenly the structure of the painting is revealed. And to reverse engineer a painting from around then is possible by just sticking your nose against the canvas. And you can see the layers as they're put on. You can see this, the size and profile of the brush and the angle of the arm. You can we know you reconstruct can, but you know you can. That's the whole point. I mean, that, yeah, I, yeah. that's what oh, I think yeah, is really yeah. interesting. But, but say I go to see uh, Caravaggio here. That has this glassy surface. It's absolutely beautiful painting, amazing lighting and drama, but the surface um, doesn't give up all its secrets the way that an impressionist painting or you know abstract expressionist or these any of these action painting type uh, techniques do. And this one, I'd say, I spent half the exhibition with my nose. I'm sure the security guards were sick of looking at me. I'm sure I set off alarms everywhere, but just my nose three inches away from the canvas, just trying to see, because as you see a painting from across the room, it has certain qualities, and as you approach it, suddenly the, the, the threads become un, unfurled and you can see how it was made. And it's really exciting for a painter to see that. And how does that apply for you uh, to the question of the development of pictorial language? It seems to John and I assembling the collection, and it, it's only it's a snapshot of his work from that period. But you know, you seem to get this very clear uh, impression of someone trying to find their own voice, mm, their own pictorial so. voice. Yeah, yeah. And does that does do you think you have an a, a, an insight into that because you've done the same thing, or because you appreciate the technique or the the, the, the problem solving? Because it is essentially problem solving. Yeah. Um, I, I can certainly associate with the feeling, and I'm projecting here a bit on O'Connor, of feeling a bit lost, especially when you're in the company of genuinely gigantic artistic figures, whether by knowing their work or whether by actually being in the same town as them or associating with them, that each time you see a, a genuinely amazing painting, your first instinct is to say, okay, I want to paint more like that. And then another guy comes along who paints slightly differently, but is also as exciting. And then you're kind of torn because you haven't found your own voice yet. So you don't have this veneer that you see, not veneer, um, this gauze you see the world through, which is your own voice. You see everything kind of as other people see it. And as a painter, that's not really, uh, a fruitful way to be, I think, because my, my, one of my other feelings of, of this exhibition is that O'Connor looked like a man in search of his voice very much so, that he, if you, if you lined up, say, seven or eight of those pieces out of context there, you could easily think seven or eight different artists had done them. And they're all in this one exhibition by O'Connor. And you're just wondering um, what's going through his head as he trying to assimilate each? Are they studies towards an, a way of painting or are they um, a guy kind of flapping between styles? 
Yeah, it's interesting because the, the, uh, the, the notion of influence recurs throughout conventional art history. So, and it, 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 it lends itself to a kind of a, a linear story. So you mm. can see that that person saw that person's work and then they took a bit of that and they added yeah. it. And because it plays quite a big role in this O'Connor exhibition, we found ourselves being quite cautious about that, about what you're actually saying when you say influence. Because where do the lines, where are the lines drawn between collaboration, influence, and copying? Yeah. And when you look at Amiet and O'Connor, their work is very close. Yeah. But it's not copying. It is about... I would see them more as a Picasso and a Brack kind of yeah. relationship. I, yeah, and maybe it was you who said it. I, I think that's been said by somebody else as well. No, no. That, yeah. Um, about about myself. Because <laughs> I think Picasso said that they were like mountaineers roped together trying to achieve the summit uh, as cubists. And Amiet and O'Connor seem to have that relationship. But then O'Connor to Van Gogh is a different relationship where particularly the drawing, there's one, two drawings of trees, pen and, or pencil and ink, I think they are, that, my God, the, there's a fierce whiff of Van Gogh of those ones, <laughs> definitely. And you can, that's the one to That's one. the art historical term. That's, yeah, that's yeah. A fierce whiff. Sorry to uh, no, get all PhD right. on you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is that, because the paintings, there is a kind of superficial quality, but when you see the late Van Gogh that's there, you can see that Van Gogh is doing his, like Van Gogh is Van Gogh, his, his paintings are so specific, whereas the O'Connor one paintings, the landscape paintings are much more, I think they're closer to Monet actually, some of them, the paintings. They have that kind of reverse scratched, um, color on color, color beside color, opposite secondaries, primaries, all this um, techniques happening. Whereas with Van Gogh, it's, it's these kind of swirls of painterliness, but they're, they're often singular colours put side by, and it's hard to describe uh, being in front of it, but they don't have that opposite colour feel to them no. that the Impressionists had, where they're trying to pull apart a grey yeah. into an orange and a blue, or yeah, th yeah. these kind of techniques. Whereas, so I, I would always see O'Connor's paintings, but not always, since I've been at this exhibition, as being closer to the Impressionists than to Van Gogh. I suppose the other way that they are is that they are very considered, and you know, I suppose there's a romantic notion of the impressionists as being impulsive, and because they painted 
on plein air that they, they you know, just knock these things together um, almost in, 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 a, in a, an instinctive way and with very little else, when in mm. fact most of them were extremely considered. Oh, you have and, to be, and, and con- for that layering of colour. Yeah, whereas Van Gogh, you get the impression on the evidence of the work itself and yeah. what you know about him, that he was... Uh, Agitated, distractible, yeah. uh, or not, 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 not distracted, uh, and, and so it, it actually manifests itself in the way he paints. Yeah, mixing the paint in his mouth, by all accounts. <laughs> yeah. This, so yeah, he wasn't a conventional painter. His his work is a la prima work. It's you know done in one sitting. It's wet into wet, whereas the impressionists have to be done in sequence because each layer has to be, if not dry, tacky for the next layer to go on without yeah. completely losing the underlayer. So that to work in sequence like that, you have to have a tidier mind, definitely. Yeah. Oh, and I, I, yeah, it's a really nice way of putting it because I think that's definitely true of O'Connor. He had an incredibly tidy mind, and he had <laughs> nothing happened by chance. Mm. And it's really evident in those striped landscapes, which are all about contour and form and compositions. In many ways, it's really formal. It, you know, it's very oh, yeah. formal. This could be Sean Scully or Frank Stella in yeah. some places. You're yeah. thinking these are just squares or lines of colour placed side by side for their own beauty and aesthetic qualities. And there is a woman in there, but she's just a vehicle for experimentation rather than a classical subject. And it's interesting because I can completely understand why uh, if you take O'Connor's work in isolation, you can see uh, resonances of, of Van Gogh there, but what the show has given us the opportunity to do albeit with one Van Gogh painting, but a very representative late one, oh, yeah. is put them side by side so you can see those differences that you're talking about, which are more than subtle. They're quite pronounced differences yeah, yeah. in the way that they engage with the process of actually, um, of actually making the picture. Yeah, and, yeah, and Van, Van Gogh's landscapes are often, not always, more, more of a plain air type painting, as in, there's nothing in the foreground, background, there's not that looking through gaps that I think there must have been some influence of photography at this stage where, say that, there's a view of a studio in this show, is that the right one? I yeah. don't know the title of the piece, but that looks like, the way it's cropped, it looks like a film or a still image photographed rather than, and there's a still life, the left of the three still lifes with the Gauguin in the middle. Oh yeah. That's cropped. That now I'm not sure if it's cropped after the fact or whether it was painted like that, but that looks, that can only have been done post-photography. And you see the still lights on the right where all the subjects are central, framed beautifully. You get this nice negative space with the edge and very classical, whereas that one is more intense and chopped down. And it's the same with the landscapes where, some of the landscapes of O'Connor's where it has that density of a depth of field almost that a camera has, whereas a lot of Van Gogh's are these uh, postcard type views. I don't mean he paints picture postcards, I mean that they're, he's standing and everything is in front of him, yeah. receding towards a horizon with element, you know, elements of interest in it, but it's not that he's looking through branches of trees or he's always slightly back from the landscape, it seems. Yeah. That's it's, why it's, it's representative, I think. No, it's interesting because we don't know um, very much about. Uh, O'Connor's knowledge of photography mm. beyond the fact that he came from that tradition of you know, Antwerp trained, Paris trained artists and uh, many of whom had drawn directly from photography and even if they didn't directly in the way that 
you know, Daniel Bouvray or Bastien Lepage did, you know, where there was quite literal, or some of the Americans, Thomas Eakins. And Sickers, straight and out of the newspapers. Uh, and, and, and Degas did as well. But <coughs> that, um, so they, it, was, it wasn't slavish, but it was, it was uh, kind of um, announcing your debt. They were quite happy to announce their debt to what was a, a, a very modern technology. Yeah, so yeah. It, was, it was a very modern way of Still is, relatively speaking. But that cropping, I don't think, could happen until you see a a photographic image of uh, with a a figure going off the page. Or you see these Dega race race course pictures that look like a picture in the Irish field or something where half the horse is gone and his head's off the top of the page and where the ballerina's receding into the distance. Just the way they're composed, it's un classical or on um, academic. You have to have seen a photograph, I think, to make those crops. Well, he was, yeah, and he was of a generation who were looking in detail at them. And he, yeah. so I wonder... I, by the way, I don't mean to imply that he's painting a photograph. No, uh, no, I know. Just that he has no, that it's, it's, sensibility. It's what, it's what, absolutely, it's what informs yeah, yeah. The, way you, the way you approach the subject. Yeah. Uh, and that was true of so many, of, of exactly that generation. Exactly that generation yeah. of you know the, the, those artists who are beginning to uh, you know who beginning to work independently in the eighties and nineties, they were they were just aware. Uh, there was much more f- photographic uh, imagery around. Yeah. I suppose the port- portable camera came in then in eighteen eighties. Uh, certainly, as we would understand the term. So. Um, I, I, it makes sense that that's the case, even mm. if it's a question of knowing and then stepping away from it and trying to step in the opposite, yeah. opposite direction slightly. Because some of the other O'Connor landscapes are that traditional easel out in the landscape, painting this broad panorama, like that the Purple Hills one that's early in the exhibition. Um, and then later on, there's the one of the, the studio within the trees, which has that kind of scenic quality about it. And at the end, it seems like an almost abstract piece. The stripes in the sky, the radiating. Well, that was the Amiens. Yeah, 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 the Amiens. That's the, the, the another banana picture. It's brilliant. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's only a landscape by coincidence. It seems it's this. That was an interesting painting, actually, because when the uh, when it arrived, the conservator who'd accompanied it from Switzerland and our own conservation team were fascinated by that Amiens because of it, its technical qualities. Yeah. Apparently, it's really, really complex as a, as a painting surface. Definitely. Because what looks like it's just concentric stripes is actually way more complex. I yeah. mean, there's thick paint and thin layers, uh, and they, they all kind of coexist in this really complex way. So they got very excited about that in a way that, you know, I only conservatives un- or maybe painters could. I got excited about that one as well. Assuming that you, <laughs> assuming that you enjoyed the exhibition, uh, what, 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 would, what do you think are, are the, the characteristics that shine through most strongly from it? I mean, I know, I know, but I, I almost have no distance on it because I was working on it and looking at the content for such a long time. Yeah. But for you're snow blind now. <laughs> I'm entirely snow blind. <laughs> Sorry. The what what I love about it is the feeling of a town in France, which we all romantically have in our heads, with all these artists doing amazing radical work, feeding off each other, fighting each other drinking with each other and forging a path and disagreeing and all the rest. And you can just see it kind of dancing on the walls from painting to painting as you walk through paintings that have little conversations with other paintings and that if this painting wasn't in the show, I wouldn't think of that painting the same way, that kind of 
collaboration of the actual work as its own as well um, is really exciting. Uh, and, you see, and you see collaboration just on the walls, because I know you, you, you have the academic side of things where you have to place people and get letters and dates and make sure everything is correct and there's primary sources and all the rest. But for me, it's just on the walls that these people were seeing each other's work, they were tying into each other. And collaboration, as we said, happens in weird ways. There can be the kind of acolytes and master relationship as we see in the Gauguin homage, which is one of the craziest paintings I've ever seen in my life, and which is just sensational painting. And it explains, in fact, that painting on its own sums up the show in a way, in that there's this leader in the middle, this Christ-like Gauguin figure, and his disciples hanging on his every word, even though he looks totally disinterested in them. And, uh, and you can see that in the paintings as they dance around Van Gogh and Gauguin and uh, Cezanne to an extent. So that's what's so exciting about it. It's real vibrant, it's just an energetic exhibition. That's what I love about it. Although j just to go back and influence there, sorry, I've just remembered that say there are dominant figures in an art scene. There always is, even on the Irish art scene. But then you go to things like life drawing classes and it's a social event. Everyone enjoys being around other artists because it's such an isolating job, uh, such, such a great amount of solitude. But there's always an element of people giving it the old side eye, looking at each other's work, and there's always an assessment, and there's always, oh, I'm gonna, I like the color over there. I might, that might wind its way onto my palette for the next thing. It's, it's just natural. It's a natural cross. Uh, contamination, maybe we'll call it. Um, uh, and Picasso again, the good artists copy and the great artists steal. So maybe that's uh, a good motto for uh, how to make your way as a painter in the world. He's, al he's, al he's allowed to say what he wants. <laughs> I, rem I remember my first day of film school, which was quite an academic course I was on, it wasn't a practical course. We were told, Today is the last day you'll truly enjoy watching a film uh, because from now on you'll just see all the cogs and all the machinery turning. You won't be able to just see a work of art for what it is. And it's a little bit like that painting, but then when you see the really great works, they just root you to the spot. It's only after the fact that you kind of go, well, how the hell did he do that? And for me, the very, very best painters, the painters I really love, it's very hard to reverse engineer what they've done. So when I see Huey O'Donoghue or Frank Auerbach or these people, I can't figure it out. Or even de Kooning, which is this action painter. So all the, all the gestures are there on the canvas, but then you try and reverse them in order in your head and you're going, well then how did that, where did that mark come from? Or when did he brush that in? Or, and there's no, I'd say even if you asked them at the time, they wouldn't remember. It's just this chaotic um, way of doing things. But you can't help it when you see an impressionist, post-impressionist painting. They're so delicious that you've got to get up close and, and the colors they use as well. Because these aren't easy colors to keep clean on a painting. So when the pink and the peach goes on, the fact that it's not dragging up the Prussian blue or the ultramarine below it means certain things in terms of how long between applications and the rest of it. So, and you want to steal from them as well, <laughs> absolutely. Copy and steal. Like, how do you do a highlight? There's a few highlights in there. I'm doing highlights at the moment on a still life type of painting I'm doing at the moment, and I'm struggling with them. And I'm 
literally going to go to my studio this afternoon and take one of O'Connor's solutions and apply it to my own painting. So it's very direct and it's pretty shameless. I walked around there this afternoon with ordinary uh, punters going around and every conversation I overheard was technical, which is really rare for me to hear in an exhibition. They were all talking about, oh look, the stripes are back, or oh I wonder, you know, what was, you know, what was he thinking here with the purples and yellows, rather than who's this chimney sweep for the kid, yeah. or they weren't interested in the identity of anyone or the place as in, in terms of geography or anything yeah. like that. They were interested in how a painter sat down and painted this thing, which for me is really exciting to see. Anytime you, I do teaching sometimes, and anytime you do teaching, people want to paint in a painterly way. It's the the holy grail for a lot of people. They want to feel the paint go on the canvas. They want to move it around. They want to sculpt it. They want to blend it and wet into wet. They want to see it drip. They want to see it coagulate, dry skin, scratch, all these things you can do with paint. That's what they love doing. So when you see these shows, you know, as opposed to a Caravaggio where it's this perfection of technique, it's like an ice rink, that painting. But it's a, be it's a beautiful ice rink. But it's just yeah, a different experience. Yeah, as you say, they, they don't offer up their secrets. <clears throat> One final question. Sure. If you were allowed to take three of them home, three of the pictures home, what three pictures would you take home? Well, one of them is one of my favourites in the National Gallery collection, which is the, the Van Gogh landscape, the first piece on the left. And one of the reasons, can I go on about this? Yeah. Because I, I think quite strongly about this, is that when these avant-garde artists uh, in in any time, at any place, play it straight when they just do a kind of a genre piece. Uh, so a landscape of Paris that's not, he hasn't Van Goghed it. He's just painted it up straight in that kind of Antwerp style that he had. They run rings around the journeymen who are killing themselves to do paintings just like that. That would be the maximum their output is. And you can just imagine these guys are throwing it off. You know, you think of films like um, Straight Story by David Lynch. You know, he's, he's not being David Lynch, and yet it's this amazing just genre piece, or uh, well, The Killing by Kubrick, heist movie, better than any heist movie you'll ever see, just because it's almost like they're lowering themselves to the rest of us, you know, the, to the absolute top of our ability, and it's just so exciting to see. So that'll be one. Second will be that landscape in the final room. I think that's astonishing, kind of uh, French, um, so French, that painting. Bonnard, yeah. I saw a Bonnard show in the Dorsey recently, a couple of years ago. And it does make you want to go on holiday, that yeah, painting. Yeah, it's great to see it during the summertime yeah. here. It, it feels like it's just a window on the wall of the National Gallery, and you're just looking out <laughs> into Marion Square. Um, that's a beauty, yeah. let me think. I suppose I should have a portrait as a portrait artist. Let me think, what's my favorite portrait? I go for the... Is it the girl sewing? Yeah. The stripey yeah. one, because I think he's really going out on a limb there. It's probably the most radical picture yeah. in, the, in the exhibition. Yeah. Certainly the most radical O'Connor picture, yeah, I'd sure. say. Yeah. And um, I always like 
every artist, when you look through their life's work, they always have a couple of pieces that are right out on the edge of the plank, and that's definitely one of them. Have so, you done yours yet? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I can't let go. <laughs> I haven't learned to let go yet. Um, uh, yeah, that one has a kind of excitement to it. Um, you always feel like he, there's a Breton girl that he's trapped in this Breton girl cage that he can't get out of it, and you'd think that the next painting would have been some astonishing abstract 20 foot by 50 foot painting, <laughs> but he never got there. So, uh, but it has that, the threat of it. So I'll, I'll take those things. Keen, many thanks for coming in to talk to me. Um, and I look forward to having many other lengthy conversations about art and all things related uh, in the future. So um, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Imagining France, Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns between Paris and Pont-Aven. With audio engineering by Mark Canton, music composition by Michael Fleming, and produced by Brina Casey. Mm-hmm.